Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 93. All right, guys, welcome. So now we've, uh, I guess, gone through our ritual of the New Year episodes, and it's done. now time to get down to brass tacks. Real episodes, right? Yeah, what's a real episode? <laughs> okay, well, ones where we don't have a lot of formal topics, more news related, I don't know. Actually, we do have a formal topic for this one, and it's going to be on app architecture, because Alex and I co-presented at our CocoDev user group this past week on uh, different app architecture patterns, uh, primarily pertaining to view level architectures. So we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, Anything good happening this week? So there's a super awesome uh, Chris Latner interview on ATP that if you haven't listened to, I highly recommend you do, even if you don't listen to ATP. It was more just a long-form interview of Chris Latner about Swift, its evolution, and what's going on Swift-wise at Apple. Uh, I thought I thought it was super interesting, even as someone who doesn't use much Swift. So check it out. Yeah, I have to admit, I I tried to listen to ATP a lot, and it's pretty daunting when you get behind by a few episodes and you see that you've got about eight hours of audio to catch up on. So even though there's good material, it, it's enough for me to, to just say, you're off my list. I think that's fair, but they 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 talked about, especially in this episode, a lot of good stuff. I, I tend to listen to ATP, and there are some, some really good nuggets of actual information, too, in this interview, other than just kind of like, whoa, that's interesting how why he made this design for how Swift does garbage collection versus manual memory management or whatever, which was actually a interesting talk, but I thought they talked about a bunch. Oh, yeah, they did a very a superb job in the interview. Uh, it was very conversational, as you said, and yet very informative at the same time. And if you're not an audio person, uh, I just saw that they put out a transcript of the interview if you just want to read it, which could be interesting. I, it sounds like they use some service to do like a rough uh, transcription, and it sounds like Marco Arment spent like four to six hours like cleaning it up. So uh, you should probably check it out. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's that's definitely dedication. So, what were some of the things you got out of that interview, or what were some of the things that Latner said that maybe shocked you or surprised you? Uh, well, I thought it was kind of interesting how uh, they basically talked about um, the effect that the community had on Swift. I think they got a much stronger uh, community interest than they were expecting, and that changed uh, what they originally thought the path was for Swift going forward. I think, was it after Swift 2 got shipped, it was, re- it was open sourced? Does that sound right? Yes. Yeah, so in between Swift 2 and Swift 3, they had a roadmap, and then the community was like, oh, we want this, and we want this, and we want this. And so they made, they, you know, they incorporated the feedback, and they actually gave a lot lot of the things that the community wanted, things that they thought would benefit the community uh, at some cost to some other features that they originally had planned. Um, But I thought it was good that 
that they uh, kind of are open to doing that with community, even if it means like changing the roadmap for what they had planned on for Swift. Yeah, I found it interesting that on one hand he's saying that ABI stability is not something that your day-to-day app programmers need, which is to some degree true. It's more of a thing that, say, an SDK developer would like to have, and that ABI stability is one of those things that seems to take a, a, a back seat to different things such as all the new language features that they were getting with Swift 3 and will probably even uh, change up due to, I think he said concurrency was one because of the way that properties are done or encoded in the class file that that could be uh, that concurrency would have an effect on that. And so that, when it sounded like they were making some changes potentially to uh, memory management, being able to explicitly tell it to do one type of memory management versus the other explicitly, um, yeah. that would probably be used more for like lower level, like driver type programming. Uh, yeah, you're right. I I mistake my mistake because he said that concurrency probably would not have an effect on the, the ABI, whereas, as you said, the memory model would. Yeah, it seems like a pretty core thing, but... So I guess the downside is uh, we may not even get ABI compatibility with Swift 4, um, but it sounds like all the stuff that they do want to work on is probably things that are very important to developers, like you know compile time and stuff like that, and they're trying to maintain source compatibility they kind of said with swift 3.1 i think which is yet to come out that they are going to do that so there's always that (laughs) yeah and he did say something that just warmed my heart where he said he'd love to see swift replace javascript (laughs) but probably won't happen speaking of which i've got a bone to pick with you sam (laughs) (laughs) i got this email the other day that said Sam Corder has endorsed you for JavaScript in LinkedIn. You were sitting right next to me when I did it. I know, but I <laughs> having the impact of the email coming in where I actually uh, did it, it is is that much worse. So <laughs> I'm going to make a call to our audience if they're if they're uh, connected with Sam on LinkedIn to endorse him for JavaScript and SharePoint. Um, <laughs> Cruel. And if they're not, you should probably, uh, you know, request to be Sam's friend on LinkedIn anyways. Um, and I'm glad I'm editing this week because I know this is going to stay <laughs> in. Oh, man. Rough. I guess you hate JavaScript more than I do. It's just not something I want to necessarily be endorsed for. <laughs> You're not looking for a job. No. <laughs> uh, so speaking of somebody who also isn't looking for a job. We were worried that he would be. Um, today, not today, it was announced earlier this week that Fabric is being acquired by Google. And as you know, uh, or may not know, that the Fastlane project, the Fastlane project had also been uh, kind of absorbed into Google Twitter. And Goog Twitter, yeah, Goog Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same at this point. It may be one day, yeah. 
So yeah, Fastlane, Felix Krauss, the founder of Fastlane, he joined Twitter, oh, I don't know what, six months or so ago. And then uh, now Fabric, along with Fastlane, is moving to Google. And then well, parts, yeah, parts yeah. of Fabric are. I think before we get to Fastlane, um, uh, it might be good just to talk about the Fabric stuff in general, but because there's a lot of stuff that uh, kind of overlaps between Fabric and Firebase, uh, which it's supposed to merge with. They both have crash reporting frameworks, which probably Crashlytics of Fabric is is the better one. They both have ad network uh, stuff built in, Mopub with with Twitter's Fabric and AdMob uh, with with Google's Firebase. And I've got to imagine that Mopub is just going to stay with Twitter since it actually makes them money and uh, Google's Firebase stuff will get will keep AdMob. It'll probably get Crashlytics and get rid of their crash reporting, I would hope. Um, is there any other big, big thing that you think Fabric brings with it other than Fastlane? There was Answers, which was a, a nice, lightweight analytics framework. Firebase, I mean, they had their own analytics, and that was the main reason we, we use them. And I felt like their their like uh, dashboard of view analytics was pretty good, too. So I'm not sure which one would necessarily win out kind of as they merged there. Yeah. Um, I liked Answers because it just allowed you to keep a little extra running metrics on your on your things. In your code, it, it wasn't real. like a full-on analytics suite. Yeah, I think the big differentiator for that is the the fact that it's real-time. So you can usually see how many people are on right now, uh, which a lot of the other solutions don't. There, There's a decent delay between uh, when people use the app and when the, the data is updated. I want to say Firebase Analytics, as well as... Google Analytics for mobile that it replaced both had a real-time component too, but... Uh, yeah, the the Analytics for mobile did uh, not on everything that was in it, though. I think there were some things that were delayed up to a half an hour. A lot of it was it was just so easy to use answers with Fabric if you're already using Crashlytics, so... Um, right. There wasn't a whole lot of work on on the developer's end. Yeah, one thing I thought Fabric really did well, even though at the end I ended up really hating it, was kind of the uh, the tooling, both with their like desktop app and and just like the straightforward way to install it. I, I mean, I don't know about you guys, I really hate that Crashlytics app now because it's always like installing new code over itself, but it was super simple to use, uh, and I felt like it worked pretty well. Whereas, uh, especially doing it manually with uh, Firebase, it was a giant pain. If you use CocoaPods, then I feel like they were both about the same in terms of complexity. But manually, Fabric really had you know a much better tooling solution going on. Hopefully, that comes with them. Yeah, that that Fabric app was yeah, it was nice at first, but definitely got, That's got what in I said the way. For... <laughs> definitely got in the way. But it, it does have it does other stuff now too, like it shows you your crashes and lets you look at stuff, gives you notifications about those things as well. Um, I feel like when when they got bought by or acquired by Twitter, 
maybe bought, I guess they bought them. I thought that was one of the big assets that Fabric had going for it a year ago. Uh, but yeah, it's gotten to be more of just like an annoying thing that just keeps updating code. But <laughs> uh, I, I think just the ease of use of like randomly installing stuff and being able to work with projects will probably be something that going forward is hopefully put to good use by Google. Yeah. Has Fabric said that their like existing apps will continue to work with it? Because uh, if not, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. That would not be good if they shut that stuff off. I got to imagine they can just like redirect some stuff. And they've already kind of gone through one conversion where everything got switched over to like the Fabric website versus the old Crashlytics website when when Crashlytics got acquired by Twitter. Right. But the, the old Crashlytics code would still work. Now, I, I'm hoping that it's the same situation. Well, yeah, and they, re they really pushed you to uh, switch over, which I'm sure they'll continue to do if there's some actual switch you have to do. One of the things that's attractive to Google about Fabric is they've, have reported 2.5 billion or more apps using the SDK with over uh, 580,000 developers. So, you know, I've got to imagine they're they're going to make that a seamless transition because that's got to be where yeah. most of the value is. Oh yeah, I, I would tend to agree. I think all that data is a is something that Google really loves. Um, but just the ability to kind of like easily add on stuff to add on things to fabric and get other people into them. I think they probably like that, that too. Clearly fabric was not making any money for Twitter though. It was a, it was a cost and they did have this asset with all this data that they didn't really know what to do with. So yeah, it's, it really does make Twitter more ripe for an acquisition. You know, they've been slimming their workforce up for the last couple of years and now this they're either going to try to make a go at it by going back to basics or they're getting sold at some point and hopefully they they get sold and the platform continues and people can still use it yeah we'll have to see what happens so one of the things that you brought up that we postponed talking about was was Fastlane getting acquired by uh, Google as well. Just just as we record, Felix Krauss wrote a blog post about the acquisition. So it seems like he's definitely coming over along with the rest of the Fastlane stuff. So I think that's probably a, a good thing in general because uh, a lot of people are using Fastlane. I, I use it to submit a bunch of app updates today. Do uh, you guys have other thoughts on the whole Fastlane going to Google thing? I imagine Felix is much more happier about getting Google stock than Twitter stock. <laughs> is that all you got? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I also hope that Google doesn't pull something like Apple did with test flight. And now all of a sudden Fastlane is only working for Android tools. Please be better than that, Google. Well, I think Apple and Google have different, uh, different things that they want. And I think the data that they would get from all the, iOS developers is something that they really would like to have. So I've got to imagine that they're going to 
keep all that stuff running for iOS oh, yeah. uh, to keep that data flowing. Yeah, it really, uh, Firebase is one of the better push notification engines out there too. So for both iOS and Android. So next topic, Alex, quick coding. You like Tor. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm playing the role of Tor this week. Uh, so, uh, which is a reference that almost no one who listens to this podcast <laughs> yeah, will get. Most likely, <laughs> most likely not. So last week, Sam and I presented at our local Cocoa Heads on app architecture, and uh, you know that, that's a topic that doesn't traditionally get a lot of of uh, airtime in our community, or at least it it didn't until recently, and lately there's been more conversation and there's there's still a lot of uh a lot of holes to fill in uh so we decided to cover some of the more popular architectural patterns in ios app development and uh, we put together a playground as well that demonstrated uh the various styles and how they differ yeah i thought yeah the playground go ahead I thought the playground was kind of a really useful tool to demonstrate the differences between a lot of the different architectures. Um, and while it may not be good to demonstrate them in audio form, uh, we'll have a link in the show note to those. Um, and you should definitely check those out to kind of reinforce what we talk about here. Yeah, definitely. Um, it really, it really came together surprisingly well. And I think, there were some issues with the playground not always updating the UI in live. Uh, sometimes it took a minute or so, but otherwise it was a really good and simple way of demonstrating these different architecture patterns. Um, the The playground itself really had, was it four different patterns? Uh, just a straight up MVC, more as a uh, thing to hold up and throw darts at. Because, so that you could see where MVC as a pattern kind of falls down. And honestly, it's more MVC the way that you see from the examples that Apple puts out, but it's not really the MVC that other, uh, I should say, software architects would, or even people that were pioneering these, this pattern back in the day would say, uh, really an MVC approach is meant to be more like I would say like a fractal approach where you have different layers of model view controllers and that's never ever really conveyed inside of the, these books and these examples well yeah as you guys so. mentioned you know on on iOS the model view controller just kind of means you have a model and then you've got a whole bunch of code and this other thing that like throws it all together you know we call it the massive view controller uh it's kind of the default way that apple kind of shows people how to do things and and their examples to some extent sometimes they don't even separate out the model stuff i feel like it's just like ah code <laughs> have at it figured out what this is doing <laughs> um but that's kind of like the the baseline uh of a kind of view level framework in ios yeah, and in MVC, something has to be fat. And what I mean by fat is something has to hold like logic and and coordinate 
between different layers. And when it's in the view controller, it's hard to test. When it's in the model and it's directly depending on your database or something, that can be hard to test too. So some of these patterns, well, really all these patterns help alleviate that, but they're prescriptions for pushing logic out of the view controller into these other layers, and which would arguably be considered a model layer that just has more pieces to it than MVC prescribes. So yeah, we went over MVVM, which was model view, view model. And one of the major differences with MVVM is they treat the view controller and the view as all part of the view and try and make that part of the application architecture dumb and, and lightweight and moving most of the behavior and logic back into what's called the view model uh, that, that'll sit in front of the model and handle things like formatting for presentation and, and uh, encapsulate the business logic and, and database access and networking uh, somewhere behind that so the view controller doesn't need to know that. Uh, you know, a lot of times the view controller becomes an application controller in, in with a massive view controller pattern and ends up having way too much responsibility. So MVVM moves a lot of that responsibility back to the view model. And one of the key things to remember with the view model is you don't want to import UI kit uh, so your view doesn't bleed into the view model. Yeah, I wanted to say that there, there actually is some legitimate cases for importing into the UI, importing UI kit into the view model. I believe it's because some constants and things are defined inside of UI kit that you might want to get access to that aren't necessarily view related. But yeah, in general, if you got your view model understanding what a UI label is, there's a problem or a UI button. Yeah, but you do run the risk with the view model of it becoming just a different junk drawer for everything else. So, you know, you could easily find yourself doing all your networking code and database access and caching directly inside of the view model, uh, like like the massive view controllers. So to some degree, uh, you might just be shifting the problem from one layer to another. It'll be slightly better because now the view controller has far less responsibilities, uh, but it, it may your view model could still end up in a state where it's difficult to test. It's highly coupled with other layers of the application. Um, anytime you find yourself instantiating other framework components inside of the view model, you you now have this this coupling that makes testing more difficult. Uh, but on, if you can keep it clean, uh, you know this becomes a much better pattern. And you know as we started getting more and more platforms to target, like WatchOS and TVOS, we now can take that view model in theory and use it with other presentation layers. Yeah, I don't know if I buy that one as much because the view model, its layout is really tied to what's on your screen. Yeah, there is definitely uh, some 
I won't say tight coupling, but assumptions about how what data is needed. So the view model tends to be tailored towards, like you said, what's what's going to be on the screen. Yeah, and and really what kind of screen interactions are going to take place as well. Uh, the one thing we have to caveat with MVVM is that it works well on its own, but the code can be a little tedious unless you employ some kind of binding framework. Uh, in my case, it would preferably be something like Rx Swift. Uh, there is also Reactive Cocoa and uh, Reactive Kit is another one that's kind of new to the party. And uh, it's a uh, it's also it's a collaboration with what was formerly called Swift Bond, uh, but you can also get away with straight up KVO if you don't mind, uh, say bringing in some cocoa into your Swift, and you can even do the KVO in such a way where you don't have this massive if if else block inside your observer your observe value for key path. Uh, the best way to do that is to have an object that actually does the observation and kind of calls back to the to the whatever is cre creating it. And the reason for that is uh, you you want to have some mechanism to keep the view and the model in sync, and yeah. those binding frameworks are the the preferred approach. You know, whichever one you choose. Right, because as soon as you update the state that's in the view model, you don't have to worry about telling anybody who happens to be listening to that view model what's going on they're going to get notified already no matter what so the other one we talked about with is kind of to me it's 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 just kind of another variation on mvvm maybe a little shorter acronym uh, mvp model view presenter not not most valuable presenter um it's still, to me, the terminology is a little strange. I mean, structurally, it's very similar. You have the presenter, which kind of takes your the role of your view model. Uh, but the presenter seems to be able to know more about uh, the view controller than MVVM sets up. Did you make that a, a fair, fair statement, Alex? Yes, so the the view controller is going to have a handle to the presenter, and the presenter is going to have a handle back to the view controller. Typically, it's not going to be um, necessarily know that it's a UI view controller. It's going to have a protocol uh, that it's going to depend upon. Uh, so again, you don't necessarily have to import UI kit inside of your presenter, uh, but the the view controller will delegate interactions and events to the presenter. The presenter will go off do its work, whether it's talking to the network or the database or uh, doing some sort of business logic, and then it will call back uh, through that protocol to the view controller to actually present the data or, or um, update the view. Uh, so it works fairly similar to the view model, just a slightly different um, communication pattern between the presenter and the view controller. Yeah, and there's there's no real need for a binding framework. Is that fair? But would it benefit from a binding framework? I, I think uh, I think if you introduce the binding framework, you're pretty much 
finding your way back to a view model as opposed to a presenter. Um, you could use something like promises or whatever in conjunction with pre the, the presenter, but uh, I think that the, that callback pattern uh, from the presenter back to the view controller through the protocol is kind of what makes that the MVP pattern, what distinguishes it from the others. Okay. And the yeah. presenter is going to have a weak reference back to the view controller uh, just to avoid creating uh, a retain cycle. Uh, this pattern also happens to be fairly popular these days on the Android development side. Uh, so what, for whatever reason, MVVM seems to have gained a decent amount of mindshare for iOS and MVP uh, for Android. Yeah. The... The other one, I don't even know if I want to talk about it on this podcast. No, I, I really, I really want to hear you explain so Viper uh, in audio form. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so I, no I, I think one thing, you know, all three of, the, of these patterns that we discussed already, the MVC, MVVM, MVP, structurally very similar. Um, MVVM and MVP create a new layer to move logic and responsibilities out of the view controller, uh, but it only goes so far. So there's a lot of things that are, are really still left up to the reader to figure out. You know how you do routing, how do you how you talk from one view controller to another, how you share logic behavior between uh, between views. Uh, so it's it's. Um, you know, it's better than, you know, maybe MVC, a little bit more prescriptive, but uh, everybody does it a little bit differently. And, um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily get you all the way there. I wouldn't consider any of these like a full application architecture, at least not for anything terribly complicated. Uh, Viper comes in to play here, trying to provide a little bit more uh, structure, especially for larger applications. That require a little bit more decoupling. Uh, so, in many ways, Viper is built on top of MVP, but it introduces a router as well and as an interactor, uh, which are some additional layers. So, the Viper acronym just go through it real quickly. You know, the V is the the view, which again, like MVVM. MVP really refers to the UI view and the UI view controller. The I is the interactor, uh, which, you know, that's a pattern that kind of comes from this clean architecture model uh, where the interactor represents a application use case, you know, it might be uh, transfer accounts in a banking application. Uh, so it's a class that encapsulates this use case level business logic that might may go across multiple screens. Uh, the P is the presenter, E is entity, which essentially is the same as the model, and then R for router. Uh, some of that is just so so they can make the acronym work, but um, <laughs> yeah. And, and in this case, router is more. This is the one that's handling your navigation, which none of these patterns you said address so right this is yeah, how you get from one view controller to another yeah and it to some degree can be used to encapsulate 
logic around, you know, in this scenario, it's presented as a modal, but another scenario might be pushed onto a navigation controller. Uh, so you move that outside of the view controllers and they become kind of dumb. And, and, you know, all these kind of require some level of assembly of those view controllers and the, and the stack down the line. And, you know, if you bake that in, in line, uh, to where you're, where you're going to use it, you've now made some some pretty strong coupling, and you've got to pass things along. So, moving that out to the router to do the assembly and and the presentation uh, can make those view controllers and that whole stack a little bit more reusable for different use cases, like how it's presented on an iPad versus how it's presented on a phone, or you know maybe even a a TVOS or watch app. Yeah, that said. Viper being one of the most complicated, you end up with what, like a dozen class files for a to-do list that you can do in say one file in an MVC pattern. Yeah. And in Viper, if you look at the examples, they, and a lot of times they take in this single responsibility principle, uh, you know, which is part of the solid uh, object oriented design principles. You know, they they took that to heart and, and to some degree an extreme, and they've broken things up into much smaller pieces. Uh, everything just does one one job, uh, but some of those to do list examples that aren't even necessarily fully implemented to do lists. You know, you might see thirty or so source files, and you know. You can definitely make the argument that you know some applications require that amount of uh, uh, deconstruction of logic into smaller units, and uh, for some applications, you know, if that number of source files grows, it can become more and more complicated just to find where to make an edit, or you know, you'll have newer junior developers come in not knowing where to to make a code change or a new feature and. Uh, things can get messy that way as well. Or even worse, you know, doing something in a layer that they shouldn't be doing, and then you're wondering why your core data stack is crashing. Yeah. yeah. Took three days for me to fix that one. All of a sudden you find business logic baked in, or network logic even, maybe in your router. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, it it can be difficult and you'll find with Viper, there's a handful of code generators out there that make it a little bit easier, but uh, you could also argue a code generator is a little bit of a code spell and maybe it's a, might have a little bit too much boilerplate, a little bit more, a little bit too many uh, source files just to create a single screen. So for your guys is a sample that you did, your uh, sample application was a single screen app with a button and when you clicked on the button it gave you uh, a quote based on some list of a hard-coded array um, of quotes uh, and you probably would not never recommend that anyone should use Viper for this use case but it was more just uh, for illustrative purposes like when you're starting an app what, what do you guys think is the right way to start like do you say I'm gonna use XYZ design pattern for my view level framework or or what would you guys say is the best way to uh, to kind of figure out what you're going to do I think if you're in a situation where you have the luxury of 
taking it more from a evolutionary design perspective where you can take these design principles and evolve into an architecture that's suited for the application that often can be the best approach uh, but you know for sam and i who are in consulting working with a lot of different developers moving between many applications having a stack a common architecture stack that everybody understands and uses fairly uh, consistently it makes it a lot easier for people to move between projects and, and pick it up and, and make edits quickly. Uh, and I think to some degree, having an idea of, of what kind of structure you want to take is good as well. Um, yeah, generally I would say keep it as simple as possible. Don't, don't over engineer. Viper might be where you end up, but I wouldn't necessarily start there. I would start with something simpler and evolve into Viper as opposed to, to saying, you know, we're, we're going to start, we only have three screens, but we're going to do Viper might be overkill. Yeah. I thought that was a good discussion that we had at the, at the meetup on the topic that kind of came to that same result. Is there, is there ever a scenario where you would say, all right, I'm going to start with Viper. Yeah. In, in all honesty, if you take a step back and think about all the different pieces of your application, you know, a lot of times you're going to find yourself thinking about it in terms of Viper anyway, like trying to separate out your kind of resource layer, which I would is where I'd put networking, database, caching. Um, you've got your model layer. You've got maybe an application controller that goes between views. Uh, then you've got your view layer. Uh, you know, I, I can definitely see why people go the Viper route. Uh, it's just, it's, it's picking the right level complexity for the application. Yeah, and, really. There, there's a phrase called YAGNI, Y-A-G-N-I. Yep. <laughs> and ba <laughs> basically what it means is it stands for you're not going to need it. What I tend to do is I'll sit down and kind of do a high level architecture of how I want my code to look. And I'll segregate off different responsibilities into what I would kind of classify as like services. And then I'll have kind of like a simple, uh, simple interface into those services. And as long as the code stays simple, I never branch out into other source files in those inside those services. But once things start getting complicated, then I look at that and go, well, there, there's, this file is too big. There's there's too much going on here for me to look at it and know what's going on right away. So then I I bust that file up into one or into at least one more file, and I keep going down that route until things are simple simple enough in each file, and then I end up with a nice little system that can work together with its components, and so. Yeah, maybe I'll end up with Viper at some point, but I'm not going to start there. And my app may never get there either if it's not, not that complicated. It may get there and it may get even further past Viper, depending on how big and complicated it is. So I kind of grow the code organically in response to how complicated it needs to be. And... Single responsibility is one of those 
one of those big ones that drives me. I think, you know, Brent Simmons had this uh, post at one point that kind of talked about, you know, making all the classes smaller and, and end up with more classes. And he talked about it as being kind of like bunnies that get out of control and start multiplying. And before you know it, it's, it's, the logic's just spread out so thin across so many different objects that it's, it's, a different level of complexity you know it's complexity kind of orthogonal to you know too much code in one class but it has ultimately the same impact so you know it's you got to be pragmatic about how you apply these patterns you know i'm glad that the community is starting to talk about design patterns again you know it seemed like people avoided the conversation for a long time uh, people are very quick to uh, criticize other people's code, but not necessarily willing to provide guidance on, you know, what a clean architecture might be. I've got a counter for that for that argument about too many classes. As long as you're not doing the same thing across multiple classes, you know, as long as you're not doing your database access across. Your data, say your database and your network access in the same class multiple times across multiple different classes and, and that you have things segregated like you should, then it's good to have a lot of little classes because you can go into that class, figure out what's wrong with it or figure out what it needs to do and make a change to it really quickly. When you're working in a whole other part of the app, you don't have to think about how this class is going to read its data. You just think, you tell the class, give me that data, and you don't worry about it. So the the whole many classes is too much idea doesn't, doesn't jive with me. Um, maybe within a subsystem where you have a class that just formats addresses or just formats phone numbers, you're getting too uh, specific and you need to generalize that class a little bit more yeah i i think where you can get into trouble is if you don't use good naming conventions so it's intuitive to other people what each class does and and i i think there's definitely cases where you could you could find yourself having related logic spread across multiple classes that really belong together you know if you find that you've got like you know, 15 different hops just to calculate, you know, some sort of value. It, you know, you might have spread the logic out a little bit too thin, a little bit too wide. Uh, so it, it, a lot of it comes down to just like having logical encapsulation of that logic. So, you know, this is, um, in a way, just if something has to know a little bit too much about the internals of, of how the algorithm works, in order to calculate it, you know, you're probably not encapsulating that behavior uh, as you should. So yeah. I think that's where people get into trouble is they, they, you know, everything almost becomes a freeform function with its own independence, and you know, it really should be encapsulated and, and grouped to, you know, related behavior. Yeah, the the answer always is critical thought. You always have to think about what you're doing. You can't just blindly apply a pattern and hope to get a good result. Right. My my lint uh, check said all my functions had to be one line, so 
<laughs> end up uh, moving everything, having a function for every single line of code. No, it's it's you know you you've got to um, be pragmatic about it. Yeah, definitely. So you know we talked about these four different patterns, high level application architecture patterns, but we you know we didn't really have time to dive into these other approaches like FRP and um, you know there there's some cross cutting concerns that don't really get addressed by these as well you know things like logging security uh, analytics uh, so there's um, yeah this is really just kind of the tip of the iceberg yeah the part you can see yeah <laughs> but there's a lot more to it and and uh, you know there's still a lot of opportunity in our community to think about how we handle things you know we don't have aspect oriented programming and I'm not suggesting we should thankfully uh, no <laughs> But, you know, we don't have, you know, with Swift especially, we don't have the ability to do some more dynamic libraries with, like, dynamic proxies. And, um, you know, we don't have custom annotations, so we can't can't really build, like, a JSON parser or a dependency, uh, you know, inversion of control container. So, you know, we don't have some of the the tooling and frameworks that maybe some other languages have. So we have to think about the problems differently uh, in Swift. And uh, I think there's still a lot of thought uh, going on. And even in languages that have those, those, those features, it's architecture is constantly evolving and we're trying to come up with better, faster ways of, of building applications. Yeah. And there's definitely not, uh, not a single way, not a single golden path to follow. Right. And there's a lot of really successful apps on the App Store that have all the code in their view controller and, you know, more power to them. <laughs> and shipping is a feature, right? You're never going to make money on code that doesn't ship. Yep. Word. It's one of those <laughs> things I need to learn. <laughs> all right. So you want to call it a night? Yeah, uh, definitely. If anybody has any thoughts or opinions about application architecture, you can join us on our Slack channel. Uh, you can join by going to chat.sharedinstance.com and love to hear more from you. Yeah, and the podcast can be reached on Twitter at sharedinst. And you guys want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. You can find me at Alex Argo. And I'm at Sam Quarter. So thank you for listening. Later. Later.